0: Let death be what takes us, Dr. B.J. Miller has written, not a lack of imagination. As a palliative care physician, he brings a design sensibility to the matter of living until we die. And he's largely redesigned his own physical presence after an accident at college left him without both of his legs and part of one arm. B.J. Miller's wisdom extends to how we can all reframe our relationship to our imperfect bodies and all that we don't control.
1: There's a big difference between the things that happen to you that are forces larger than you. I can yield to Mother Nature. I mean, I can yield to 11,000 volts. That's a very different prospect than is shutting down your imagination or rolling over altogether. So there's a, a challenge to our sense of proportionality in all this. And I've loved that theme. That word proportionality comes up for me a lot, trying to right-size myself.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. B.J. Miller is the executive director of the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco, and he's an assistant clinical professor of medicine at University of California, San Francisco. A self-described suburban boy, he moved all over the U.S. growing up with his family until he attended Princeton. And there, the accident that nearly killed him set him on a path to medicine, but first to studying art. Design is such an important word for you and such an important notion that I feel runs through all your life and your work. And, and, you know, to me, there's a spiritual aspect to that, you know, expansively defined. And I'm just curious about where you trace the origins of that. Would you say that you always had a design sensibility, even if you didn't use that language?
1: I would say, yes. I would say I always had an aesthetic sensibility. I think one of the great things that moving around the planet did for me at a young age was as my wiring was setting up, I was exposed to a bunch of different landscapes Mm. and people too, but much more diversity of landscape is at least what what stuck with me. And that led to noticing changes in light and sunsets and Mm. terrain at a young age that really deeply informed me. And that later turned into interest into art. But I think at first was the natural world and in and the world of the senses.
0: Yeah. So I know you've told this story so many times. I mean, you you, you grew up, as you say, all over. You went to Princeton. And yeah. then in your sophomore year, 3 a.m., I believe, you climbed, was it over a subway train?
1: No, it was a commuter train okay. above ground. Okay. Um, yeah, so in... November sophomore year, we were just back from Thanksgiving holiday, and you know I was away from my friends for what four days, and I missed them. We were all, yeah. we were, we had a quite a loving group of friends at that stage, and we went out just to kind of hang out, and uh, it wasn't a big night; it was a Monday night, but decided to go get a sandwich uh, at a place called the Wawa Market, which is a <laughs> New Jersey phenomenon, and open 24 hours, and we were walking our way to the Wawa Market, which sits on the edge of campus. And in our path is this thing, this thing called the Dinky. Mm-hmm. The Dinky is a small commuter train that runs from Princeton to Princeton Junction for all the commuters. So I was just sitting there. It was not operating hours. It was just sitting there. We climbed it like you would climb a jungle gym. Yeah. Um, not at all thinking, I thought- in, it was not feeling like a very daring stunt at all, but I happened to uh, be the first one up, and when I stood up, I had a metal watch on, and the electricity arced to that watch, entered the arm, and blew down and out my feet.
0: Eleven thousand volts. Out. All right. Yeah. 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 I, I giggle because. Yeah, I know you're well, giggling. For a of it's reasons, reasons. Clearly, <laughs> clearly, you have worked your way through this memory. <laughs>
1: Well, it's 25 years old, and yeah. so much has flown from it. So much good has come from that experience. It's a, it's remarkable. I also don't want to be Pollyannish about it. That sends the wrong signal. But part of my chuckle is that the thing was called the dinky. It's um, <laughs> <laughs> part of my pride is wrapped around losing three limbs to a thing called the dinky. Yeah.
0: But anyway. Well, you know, and I have to say, I I the particular moment in my life in which I read your story is when I have one child off at college and the other heading off mm. and, you mm. know, and even as you're telling this story, I think what's so, you know, it's, it'd be horrific no, no matter what, but that it's, it's just this innocuous playful moment, right? Yeah. After yeah. which everything changed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. And I mean, 25 years later, you can see so much, I mean, that is, it's a change that defines your life in wonderful ways, but um, mm. Very dramatic.
1: Very dramatic. Yeah, that is true. But aversion, a variation on a theme that so many of us have, little unexpected moments, things we think are innocuous, as you say, which aren't uh, the surprises of a daily life that aren't always of such dramatic consequence, yeah. but they're happening all the time, you know, on various levels. And I've kind of, that's been a, a way into some curiosity in a sense of a little bit of mystery around it. And Which one thing? One of the fallout pieces of fallout that I love is this, this this cognizance, this awareness of, I guess, fragility is the word. It's not well. It's not really fragile. It's just that these we turn on these dimes all day long, and where they all collectively lead us is, is is just kind of fascinating. So,
0: and 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 then it's so interesting that after you, I guess, had a period of recovery and returned to Princeton, you. You studied art history. So mm-hmm. uh, tell me about that that decision. What went into that?
1: Yeah, it was like a lot of... There was a sort of an intuitive piece of it, for sure. And there was also an overlay of, well, a very conscious overlay of, hmm, sitting in the hospital bed, kind of trying to wrap your head around this this turn in your life. And... Yeah, to a degree trying to make sense of it, but mostly just trying to process it at, at all and reframe myself or really reframe my relationship to the world around me so that I could fit into it. So I've lost these body parts, but I remember this question, like, does that make me less of a person? You know, n- by volume. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. but not in any other way. But I didn't really know how to frame it. So... long-winded way of saying I I circled to art as this peculiar thing that humans do uh, as they process their reality or they make sense of their world or they affect their world or just reflect on it. And the hunch was that art was a vehicle. Learning about art would help me learn about perspective and how to see.
0: Yeah, it's such an interesting phrase, perspective making. Because some, somewhere you mm. you said you know you had the this loss of your limbs. You you lost both legs below the knee and one arm below the forearm, and you said, but you could no more reject this fact than reject your whole being. So it's, mm-hmm. it's almost like you also had. To, it's also you, you had to. You were getting a new sense of the perspective yourself. Your the your body's perspective in space, and
1: yes, and totally. and
0: but. Um, I you know, and the analogy of art is wonderful. I just recently interviewed this anthropologist named Mary Catherine Bateson. Are you aware of her? She, I'm not. She's Margaret um, Mead's. She was the daughter of Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson, mm-hmm. and she her phrase is composing a life, mm. um, which is very you know I, I hear echoes of that with what you're saying, and and so and mm. you know as you're saying you had a d- reconfigured physical self, but you were You were composing a whole, right? Your life as a whole. Yeah. Yourself as a whole. That
1: that language resonates with me. I like that very much. Mm. Uh, The word composing, and I like its overlay with music, which has always been important for me. But yeah, and seeing it as a creative enterprise, as well as an adaptive one, um, was, was really... It was very rich. And, and it was really like an excuse. I wasn't, I was sort of a melancholy child. My internal world was a little bit at odds with my external world, with the way I presented to the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure many of us would say that. But this radical change to my body really, in a way, offered this great excuse to refashion my perspective, refashion and compose the, my sense of self.
0: But, you know, and it's so beautiful, and I, it's clearly you live this. But I, I, I have to wonder, like, what it, you know, what did it take for you and to come to that? That must have been a process. Um, it sure was. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <I'm> just, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. It sure was. I'm sorry to cut you off.
0: No, no. I yeah. I just. Um,
1: it, And I actually really appreciate you mentioning that because sometimes I hear myself talk. And, of course, it's funny how we remember things. And my mind wants to go to the beautiful side, the creative side. Um, And part of it's born of a a gratitude, the way life has played out. And I want to acknowledge all the good. But it's almost a disservice in a longer conversation uh, because it took a lot to get there. And I don't and and sometimes I hear myself talk when I speak with others who are going through some hardship and certainly the message isn't like, well, just change your perspective. In a couple of minutes, you'll see the world different. Everything's great. You know, quit complaining. So it really, yeah, I mean, there's a ton, I mean, buckets of physical pain and this reworking. I mean, as if, you know, late adolescence isn't hard enough. Yeah you know you're and trying to find your way in the world as a, as something of an adult i mean it's plenty hard so all that was going on and it really took years this was a process that took years and i would say of course is still ongoing
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with Zen hospice leader B.J. Miller. There's a wonderful line. Um, I, I, I think you said it in your TED Talk. It, it, it comes up on the Zen Hospice Project website. Um, mm. Let death be what takes us, not lack of imagination. hmm those are those are your words? They are. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's, it's a stunning, wonderful sentence. So talk about how you came to that and what that means for you, what that holds for you.
1: Well, it's very much like along the lines of what we're talking, uh, you know, that there's a big difference between the things that happen to you that are in forces larger than you Um I can yield to Mother Nature, I mean, I can yield to 11,000 volts. That's a very different prospect than is shutting down your imagination or rolling over altogether or losing yourself altogether. So there's a way, there's a, a needle to be threaded here of both acknowledging these forces much larger than ourselves and, for me, bowing before them. I mean, mm. there's a there's an allegiance, in a way, to these things that are much larger. And at the same time, any sort of proportionality and right-sizing in that math also means, it doesn't mean you're nothing. You may be a speck of sand in time, but a speck of sand is something. You may be a drop in the bucket, but that bucket would be different without your drop in it. So there's a proportionality uh, a challenge to our sense of proportionality in all this, which uh, and I've loved that theme. I, I that that word proportionality comes up for me a lot. Trying to right size yeah. myself. Well, you know how we we have this capacity as human beings to change ourselves and change things around us, and if you're not careful, that capacity. And then expectations that flow from it can run away with you. And all of a sudden you feel like, gosh, if I didn't, if I don't change the world today, you know, I've failed, you know, or if I don't cure cancer tomorrow, I've failed. Or if I don't beat death, I've, you know, f- yeah. trying to find the enough Gumption and wherewithal to respond and to try to do things, while not being so overblown in your expectations that you feel bad for not changing something that's unchangeable. So there's, there's, uh, and for me, there's th- that that that's a really tricky and dynamic equation that's changing all the time.
0: And that you know that particular form of suffering i mean let's call it that is kind of it's a that that challenge of proportionality is a is a burden of people who are privileged in a way right mm-hmm. to, to to even have that mm-hmm. aspiration or or that sense handed to you that you have so much that you should be able to change the world or or mm-hmm. or, or defeat whatever whatever uh, obstacles are put in front of you Mm-hmm. Um. It's true. Mm.
1: You know, it's so funny. I watch when people try to wrap their head around it. Am, am I when I when I talk to them? Am I I BJ? Am I like, the least lucky person in the world or the most lucky person in the <laughs> world? And I I don't know. Sometimes I think I'm a little of both, yeah. as I'm sure many of us are. Most of us are to some yeah. degree. Depends who you're comparing yourself to, etc. But yeah, um, for sure. Just think about my backdrop. Again, I was not, you know, think about my education and whatever personality threads and through lines there have been that I've inherited. Much of what we're talking about here, which in uh, the sense of proportionality and changing anything, it's a very privileged position to be speaking from. And I would also add, Krista, I think it's also true, although... I want to be careful that I'm not speaking for people whose situations I don't understand, mm-hmm. but there is something about just getting through the day. I mean, being a human being—I don't care what your circumstances are. I mean, some of the most miserable people I know are, by some measure, the luckiest. Uh, I, I think being a human being is just in, is is inherently difficult. And so, getting through the day is a sort of a creative process and a proportional uh, a process of proportioning yourself. Um, so, anyway, there's a lot to say about that, but I don't think it's all about privilege.
0: No, no, I, I don't either. I, I actually think there's a subtler point which you just you just got at. You said something really important. I think that you you talked a little. You said a minute ago that you were a melancholy child. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I don't think you used the word relief, but there was something about you said there you had always. Um, There'd been kind of a disconnect for you between your inner life and what you maybe thought you should be Mm -hmm. in the world. And I think that's true. As you say, that's a human characteristic, and it comes with whatever conditions or circumstances we have. You said that when you had this accident and this trauma and this physical suffering, that you finally had some suffering other people could see. Um, I think that's really important, right?
1: Amen. Amen yeah I was thinking about that driving over here actually Krista the um part of the difference in my experience of being alive has a lot to do with how the world responds to me, and the fact that I have these very obvious disabilities yeah. means that people treat me differently, so that's a huge piece of this equation and that uh, and a very interesting one, and one that's out of my control um and especially in my world and role in moral and medicine, I find it a very useful that my body in its obvious suffering is is very useful it, it's, a, it's a means of building trust with people who are also suffering from their body failing in one way or another so uh, it is interesting to note how much of this transformation that we're talking about a isn't really much of a transformation, and B has yeah. to do with people outside of myself more than inside of myself
0: but the transformation that you were kind of compelled to i mean as much as we all carry whatever our suffering is, and it has infinite variety, we are taught to hide it, right and to hold mm-hmm. on to it. But what you were compelled to do is let it is for it to be seen. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge move. You know, now you work in hospice, and that's this unavoidable move that people have to make, um, yeah, in accepting that they are dying,
1: yeah. I will uh, you know trying to speaking of proportionality trying to find for my own sense of confidence I often wonder what 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 can I take credit for in any of this stuff and one of those one of those decisions is 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 to you know come out of the closet in a way uh, as as a disabled person and I think about this idea of normalcy a lot. Mm-hmm. Like I like so I I and many many others before me have been agents of normalizing disability. And that's really potent. And I also think there's a second half to that equation that we need. That doesn't mean that we fit these other things into uh, our idea of normal it means we expand our idea of normal okay and uh, you know I think that, no, that life's weird life's hard life's <laughs> weird humans are weird and I I worry sometimes that we exist in such a narrow bandwidth of, of accepted behaviors and, and thoughts that we really clip off so much of the strange beauty that can be, Part of the human experience, and so, but I back to your point. I remember I was about two or three or four years into my odyssey in these shoes, and the norm, like for for lower limb prostheses, the norm was that you put these flesh colored foam covers over your legs, so that they looked more natural, and they had the shape of a leg. And I remember I was studying architecture at Princeton and modern architecture in particular, and about Louis Sullivan and others pulling the applique off the buildings and delighting in the structure itself. Uh, And that was just such a mind-blower for me, and so I pulled the covers off my legs and started to force myself and then to genuinely delight in this weird structure that now was my legs. Yeah. I love these legs. These legs aren't some cheap imitation of what I lost. These are wholly new things. These are different things that deserve their own space and credit. I love them, and, it's, and I'm interested in how they look. So that was very therapeutic for me, and I will take a little credit for whatever courage that day helped me do that. Yeah, And similarly for my arm, I have a lot of skin grafting on my arm, and I wore a sock over it for years. At first it was like this white uh, sort of medical so- stocking, and then I got a little creative and started wearing like, like Paisley or Argyle socks on the arm to have a little bit of style around <laughs> okay. it. And then, and then maybe again on the same period, maybe five years in, I just pulled the sock off one morning. I didn't feel the need to cover it up anymore. And, and that was just a spontaneous moment that it, and subconsciously I think I've been working towards that for years. And one day I just didn't need it anymore. Um, so anyway, mm-hmm. those moments, yeah. there, was some, there was some courage in those moments. Wonderful. There was moments of just willing myself out into a public view that I remember was very awkward and uncomfortable. But I knew it was a good, and, good thing for me to do and, and perhaps a good thing for others around me to see.
0: You know, I'd love to, I've seen pictures of your of your prosthetic legs and, um, I and, you know, this image is becoming, as these things are more out there and available to people, mm. it's, you know, it is becoming part of our imagination about the human body, I think, mm. Inter- so yeah. interestingly. But I'd love to hear how you would describe your, your legs, you know, tell me what you mm. see when you look at your legs, that beauty that you see.
1: Mm. Well, there's the... The beauty of the carbon fiber weave you know carbon our basic organic substrate yeah. but here it is in these sheets of woven material that are so strong so light such a nod to both mother nature and a human uh, ingenuity for harnessing it so we've got this beautiful black carbon weave you know if you buy your sports car you'll pay extra to have a carbon fiber door or panel or yeah. some you know it's a it's a it's an acknowledged aesthetic um, so first, I notice the color. Then I notice the sculptural quality of of the of the piece, what's called the socket, and the socket is what goes around my stump, the the what's left of my fleshy leg. Mm-hmm. And that is sculpted to my leg. So it is a piece of sculpture. this is a this is where the craft comes in. Mm. and it has sculptural qualities to it. there it reveals the shape of my stump. And then below that, you've got this. I've had various feet over the years, and but they're all they have these very some of them have these very narrow, skinny little ankles. It almost has a it's a version of what I feel like when I look at a horse. <laughs> that incredible mm. power, those beautiful thighs on these teeny, teeny, tiny little ankles, <laughs> and it's similar with it's not quite that dramatic, but it's a little similar with prosthetic feet, because in a way. The, we are able to construct things which are stronger than bone and don't need all the support structures. So that's what I see when I look at my legs. The piece that has bummed me out for years now is the is it's what's left to chance at the level of the shoe. And shut me up here, Krista, because I could go no, on no, for it's this, great. this I love it. for a Keep while. Going. <laughs> well, the shoe is like yeah. you've got this incredibly engineered, crafted leg that I was just describing.
0: Yeah.
1: And then at the final moment, where that leg is interfacing with the ground, with Mother Earth, with the thing that it's meant to affect, it's left to chance. There's this this thing called the foot shell, which is this pink-colored. Very often, I'll have these sort of faux toes on it, um, <laughs> rubber thing that goes over your prosthetic foot so that it will take on the shape of a quote-unquote normal foot, so that you can wear normal shoes. Mm. And as we've been talking, like I don't want to pass. I want to, you know, that why, <laughs> darn it! Like, why this final element is left uh, to this sort of a compromised design state has always bothered me greatly. And the fact of it is, just really, there's no one has built shoes for prosthetic feet before. I don't have all those little bones that you guys have. I don't. It doesn't need <laughs> right. to have that silly shape. You're it doesn't. Right. <laughs> you know, it can look totally different. Oh, that's really. But fun. we have not. Yeah. We haven't gotten there yet.
0: You can listen again and share this conversation with BJ Miller through our website onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. Just a tip and this is On Being. Today I'm with B.J. Miller. He's the executive director of the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco. And the personal passion for design that he takes into his thinking about living and dying and medicine was galvanized by a freak accident while he was a college student in which he lost both of his legs and part of one arm so many of the ways you talk about and seem to think about and just approach um what you do palliative care hospice is also completely interwoven with this design sensibility that mm-hmm. right that we've been talking about all the way through i mean and mm-hmm. this aesthetics you know and, and the language you use and the images you use i mean and, and i just you know some you know for example you say our shared mortality is a source of great beauty mm-hmm. what do you mean when you say that
1: well you know the fact that we all that we have these bookends of birth and death and in between it feels like a guitar solo you know like in between all sorts of crazy things can happen but the, the song begins and the song ends at least for this bodily life and the fact that we share that 100% of us across time and space across cultures that all of us share that version of fate is compelling to me um, so kind of finding a purchase a toehold in what we share and all that we share opens me up in a way that i feel that feels beautiful that makes me love people more <laughs> not less that makes me more open to people not less makes me more open to myself not less. So it's it's an, it's an observation of what, when I start thinking about this common fate, like looking within myself, what does it do to me? Well, that's what it does to me. And mm. that seems very good.
0: Yeah. And you know, quality of life is kind of, is an overused phrase, which is not to say that it doesn't mm-hmm. have meaning, but it's an overused phrase. But you know, I, I feel like you, you, you know, when you paraphrase it in this way, you talk about that hospice is about living fully into our last breath. And the mm. fact that this, you know, hospice, which is just and palliative care, which are so new, um, that, that hospitals were never designed to do that, um, mm-hmm. to help people live fully into their last breath. I mean, you even pointed out that the word anesthetic is literally the opposite of <laughs> yeah. aesthetic. That hospitals yeah. assault the senses. Yeah. You've you've also talked um, about time. That's such an important concept for you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, say something about that.
1: Yeah. Well, so existentialism. You yeah. Know, I mean, I it kind of flows out and, of that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So being in time, right? So we are, <laughs> Heidegger and others have talked about how this is, our relationship to, to time is is foundational for the human experience. And that makes sense to me. Why? Because we have this weird facility to imagine the future and remember the past. And right there, that sets us up to have some relationship to the clock. And we as conscious human beings, we know we die. And we therefore know our clock ends on some level. So time just seems foundational. And I think a lot of the gymnastics that we do as human beings has to do with our relationship to the clock or lack of a relationship to the clock. We squander time until it's too late, etc. Um, so I, I sort of just looking for, I love looking for the, the building blocks, the raw material, the, the irreducibles. So space and time are two components I want to feel and I want to work with. Um, and watching the clock is, I think, a big part of my job as a palliative care and hospice doc.
0: Hmm.
1: It's how I see a big chunk of my job.
0: And, I don't know, somehow we – I guess when you are dying, you have no choice or at least there's there's a particular urgency about facing that. But aging is something we're all doing all the time yeah. and not necessarily yeah. <laughs> choosing to face it. You see that yeah. somewhere – you know, you want to think about aging and dying as a process of crescendo through to the end.
1: Yeah. Well, this is where the aspirational and reconciling the aspirational with the realities on the ground is tricky. And mm-hmm. for my love of design and aesthetics, beauty, I have to be very careful that we don't set ourselves up to for yet another thing to fail at. Yeah. So if we're not, right. you know. Yeah. So it's tricky. But what I guess I want to do, and it's partly that comment about, like, I don't want to die of a lack of imagination. I don't want to have our systems predetermined that we fade out. I don't want mm-hmm. to have our systems designed and predetermined that I peak in my life when I'm at most productive. So when there's ever a moment to design the context, to create the construct... I want to make sure we take that very, very seriously and don't accidentally predetermine misery that doesn't necessarily need to be there. Mm-hmm. So that's really what I'm calling for. We can't all experience aging and dying as a crescendo, but if we in, if we make space for that possibility, uh, then it's much more likely to happen. And I do think, from some as as you as your body ceases to be. Your best friend is this painless agent that takes you all over the planet. Um, As your mind may fade, there's always something, whether it's a sense of smell or touch or a thought. There's something living in you until you are dead. And one of the sort of (laughs) conceptual things, it sounds kind of silly, but just I love saying this to people, to students. Like, you know, dying people are living. You know, we talk about the dying as though there's some other species over in the corner. We are the dying. And seeing ourselves in that mix is very fruitful in a number of ways. But it also allows us to see dying as a part of of living. And therefore, we can design that as an experience. Um, You know, for me, it gets very interesting to define death. Like, what is death to me? You know, there's like a – there's a legal definition of that. Like I cease to have any cardiovascular function and my brain no longer talks to my body or whatever. You know, there, there's sort of clinical ways so that my doctor and my lawyer can pronounce me dead.
0: Yeah.
1: But when am I – for my own purposes, when am I dead? When is it – when am I really done with this life? I don't know. We'll see as I get closer to it. But from where I sit – I'm very, at this point, very clear when I can no longer sense anything, whenever I can, when I can no longer take in the world around me in any way, then I'm, I'm dead. And that brings me back to this life of the senses and the immediacy of the senses. And the one thing I know is that the body dies, this body dies. And this body is just a big sack of sensors. (laughs) <laughs> so, <Okay. laughs> uh, you know, so that's that's the big loop for you right there.
0: I mean, you've been talking about this. All, all We've talked about this all the way through the conversation um, about this, the matter of disability. And, you know, I, I want to just sort of read something you wrote, because I, I feel like this is very fluid also, how we're thinking about disability, what we're calling it. And, and, you know, in your lifetime, um, in our lifetime, this has been very fluid. So you wrote, back in 1990, I was treated as a Frankenstein figure or a Christ figure, and it was ridiculous at either extreme. Sometimes I got congratulated for going to the bathroom. Then somewhere Mm -hmm. along the way, amputees seemed to bust out, and a handful went out and did extraordinary things, competing in Ironman triathlons. And the expectations change. If I didn't climb Mount Everest, I had failed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yep. I still own that. Those words. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. They're
0: I mean, relevant. you know, language. And know, again, I'm thinking about the aesthetic. You know, sometimes in, when people write about you, they use the language of they describe you as a triple amputee, which is it. You mm-hmm. know, technically true, but to me, it's just such. It doesn't really dis- describe you. It's very antiseptic language. Mm-hmm. Um, but I yeah. don't know how to – so I'm, I'm curious about how you think about, you know, even the language of disability, um, but also how we're working with that and struggling with it.
1: Mm. So, yeah, I, this is where, you know, really disability and chronic illness was my way into hospice and palliative care, much more th- uh, than death per se, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Um, but you know, disability—it's—it points us. You know, a big theme for me uh, back in as an undergraduate in my senior thesis, a uh, subcurrent was was my frustration with language, that words can point to things. I know words have their own life as well, but I I, I still struggle with how much potency words have. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what are words and,
0: that you struggle with?
1: Well, just the whole, I mean, well, let's just start with you asked about disability. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm okay with it, but the, what, I, what was not discussed is, well, compared to what? What's the frame of reference? What's the dis? <laughs> right. yeah, you know? Right. yeah. So that, that's implied. I mean, we can step back and discuss it, and I love when, when people do, but otherwise you just accept on face disability, that you are less, you know, that it's no. something pathological happening, right? But compared to what? So I, you know, this this relativism of language, and the f- idea of words as signposts, as imperfect yeah. s- uh, reproductions of the reality they're trying to point to, I just want that to be acknowledged whenever I'm in a serious conversation. That words are sort of sort of the best we have, but they're so flawed. Yeah, uh, I just I just need that to be acknowledged somewhere.
0: I mean, it's kind of back to that idea that we're all carrying around whatever our forms of suffering and struggle are, and some of them show on the outside, and those we call disability kind of.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, right. Again, wounded healer, disabled. Yeah. If everyone considers themselves disabled, I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. Same thing. You know, it's like, I remember when I would go, I haven't done this in years, but I would go to, people would invite me to come speak to their classroom schools, often in high schools, or when kids would approach me uh, in in a park or something say invariably the same way hey don't you miss having two hands you know some version of that question would come up yeah or two feet or whatever and i would say well you know sure yes i do i really miss having two hands oh boy do i miss having two hands i mean what a treat i you can keep the feet (laughs) Mm -hmm. but i'd love i mean hands are remarkable but i would say to these kids yeah well don't you miss having three you know, and they're like, what? what? They just look at me kind of funny. And I don't know how many of them ever, I don't know if that, that retort ever did any good for any child. But the point was, well, like, this is my reality. Yeah. Having one hand is my complete and total reality. It's not a half a reality. Um, and I don't see too many two-handers ruining the fact that they don't have three hands. And yet it's basically the same re- relationship to something you can't control.
0: It, and this is on Being Today with BJ Miller of San Francisco's Zen Hospice Project. You've talked about love and joy and great hope as experiences of dying when it's done well. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how you would, you know, what does hope, what does great hope mean at the end of life, as you've experienced hope at the end of life?
1: Mm, Hope is such a funny thing. It's such a squirrely thing. Um, We can do damage with hope, too. Mm. It's a powerful thing. Mm. And a lot of the data around why some physicians uh, don't share the full truth of a prognosis with their patients And invariably, you'll hear some version of, well, because I don't want to take away their hope. And they know that hope is what gets them out of bed in the morning and wills them to try the next therapy or whatever it is. Hope is a very potent thing. But in my training in palliative care, I learned, you know, whenever I hear that word, whenever I hear the phrase, I hope for, uh, I'm trained now to ask, to inquire, well hope for what that it's a, that it too is a relative uh, phenomenon
0: yeah.
1: and that needs to be contextualized and is much more fluid and malleable than we in healthcare often give it credit for or we humans give it credit for it seems to be like a monolith either you have hope or you don't the, the truth is we can change what we hope for And you watch in palliative care, for example, in hospice, that sort of medicine is done well. When these informed, skilled conversations play out, you'll hear providers work with the person's hope, but redirect it. So when I ask someone who's facing the end of their life, you know, if I'm trying to help them understand that time is short, you know, I will talk about what they hope for in their their life. And if I hear them say, well, I hope to live another 30 years, but I know they've got You know, three weeks, well, there's a big red flag for me to say, you know what, man, what if that doesn't happen? Then what might you hope for? You know, what, if time is shorter than that, what do you, what, what's, what's at the essence of your hope? And invariably, or, well, not invariably, but very often you can get folks to a place where they say, well, gosh, given that reality, what I really hope for is to get to my daughter's graduation, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I say, okay, well, there's a goal we can work with, you know? And if someone says to me, well, I hope to live forever, well, then I call that a miracle. And I say, well, let's hope for miracles together. <laughs> okay. You know, yeah. it's just I, I'm. there's a lot to say about this word hope. It's it's something that, that there's a lot to work with there. But back to answer your question, when time is short, when people are facing the end of life that does is not necessarily a hopeless endeavor. They may hope to have one more piece of pizza mm-hmm. or they may hope to see that last episode of a show they love. But it it can be realistic and it can pull people along so that they are actually able to play themselves all the way out, mm. and that's that living until your final breath thing.
0: It's interesting to me. Um, you work with death as this normal thing, this practical reality. Something we're all we're all dying, right? That's another mm. reason the. The physician is a patient too, right? <laughs> We're all dying. Yeah, exactly. Um, yes. Um, but you, you seem to hold it together um, with this enduring kind of reverence. You know, I would say reverence or honoring also that the the mystery of death itself. Um, mm. um, do you feel like you understand, or you know, that you reckon differently with death as part of your life, differently mm. because of this life you've been leading—is it less of a mystery?
1: You know, I—it's th- a great question. There, there's a history in my field of of some spectacularly difficult deaths of people who worked in hospice. I think the admonition to us is us, meaning those of us who work in this field, whether a volunteer or physician or nurse, or whatever is you don't seduce yourself into thinking that you know death, that you understand, I got it now. You know, I've, I've been through, I've been around this block a million times with folks. I got it. So when it's my time, I'm going to be fine. That is really dangerous. That's like jinxing yourself. Um, you know, some of this is knowable. And, and, for example, you know, teasing out dying and the implied suffering. You know, dying is different from death you know, mm-hmm. and, and teasing. And most of us are afraid of dying mm-hmm. because we it implies suffering. And when you get down to it, that's what most people are worried about.
0: The dying rather so, than the death of the being. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah. So, so there's a lot I have learned that will help me suffer less, can help me help others suffer less in that dying process. But I do not pretend to know or understand death per se. And part of what I do, the reverence th- that you point to, is again back to this mystery, this thing that I don't understand, that's much larger to my, than myself, and that what happens after I die, I don't know. And boy, isn't that interesting? Yeah. <laughs> so, so part of my work, and I think for a night, you know, when we talk to students, is yeah, get familiarize yourself with the concept of death, and certainly with the concept of dying, but don't seduce yourself into thinking that you totally know it. Because otherwise, you're going to find yourself standing at your horizon one day, and you're going to be really extra shocked to learn that you're terrified when you just assumed you wouldn't be. Mm. So I just, I, so it's always, it's just a, it's I easy. Just make a little bit of space. Too, that's the mystery yeah. too, right? So just, yeah. you just got to protect a little bit of space for all that you don't know.
0: Mm. So just, you know, my last question. I'm. You've had an extraordinary life. You, a lot has happened to you. You've, you've taken a lot, and you've, 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 you've. You know, this great uh, accident early in your life, the kind of redesign of your life and the career you've had, and now working with people. And in some ways, you could talk about what you do is help people, you know, design, uh, compose, you know, their, their mm-hmm. dying, the end of their lives. Um, how would you just start? This is a huge question, but how would you just start to think about, you know, what all of this is teaching you about what it means to be human? And I, and I think that another way to ask that is, you know, how you carry all of this into the way you spend your days, your life.
1: Mm. Yeah. It's a hot question. And it's, a, it's an ever-present one. Um, I think it's interesting. It's, I'm, you know, I'm 44 and I look back and by most measures I have had a pretty extraordinary life. And at the same time, uh, what one of the most adaptive th- skills I've picked up over the years is really is is, you know, when you all of a sudden become a triple amputee or anything like that, yeah. you're sent a bunch of signals that you're different now from people around you, and if you stop there, you really can really hurt yourself, and you get treated special, right, and specially, and that has its own seduction too, uh, and pity you know you can know, get stuff from pity and it's really one of the one of the great graveyards in traversing all this is if you for me i guess if if i were to really yield to this idea that oh yeah i'm different mm-hmm. than those around me and just leave it at that i would have just in, inserted a wedge between myself and everyone around me that ultimately would not serve me we are social creatures and one of the most important things i've ever done was to hit on this idea of seeing variations um on themes so sure my body's different in a lot of ways in a lot of ways my life is different but ultimately i see them as variations on themes and that allows me to acknowledge what's what's relatively unique in my life but also to see myself as just like anybody else in a very truthful and real way not just made up. So uh, that's part of my answer to your question. But you know, this idea, I, I struggle with this. I'm a very busy person, like so many of us, stupidly busy. Here I have, I have so from my own experiences, but I, I have all what I call these vicarious deathbed experiences all the time. I'm around people who are yeah. dying. Yeah. And I, of all people, know that time is precious. Don't squander it doing things you don't care about. You don't don't give it away too cheaply. Blah blah blah. Spend less time at work, more time with family. Whatever it may be, <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> you know, I I have no excuse to forget that. <laughs> Zip. Right. And yet, I find myself incredibly and increasingly busy. Sometimes out on limbs doing things that I don't necessarily want to do or not even believe in on some level. And there's a great, there's some real moral distress in that. Yeah. I think that's part of how we burn out, is you have these lessons, but we find ourselves still unable to actualize some of these lessons. So it's a hot question for me right now, chris I got to figure out, I got to kind of constantly retool myself uh, and rejigger how I spend my time. I'm aware that I have too many friendships that have gone fallow. I'm aware that I spend too little time with my parents. Uh, and other examples so i got to i got to reproportion myself uh, but you know what again.
0: what you're just what you're just describing i mean that that there you have a consciousness about you know what did you what did you say that with you know what we know we we know what we want and actually what we should do and what'd be good for mm-hmm. us and we have t- trouble aligning mm-hmm. reality with that i mean that is, that is the human condition that's that's the nub of it you're working with that
1: i am working with that but, you know, you're also pointing to, as I get frustrated with how I'm spending my time sometimes or not spending my time, not treating it with the preciousness I know it deserves. Not designing
0: your time. Yeah, yeah. Well,
1: that's right. And this yeah. is ultimately I'm landing back and this is where it is. And this is a creative pursuit. Yeah. One that takes trim sales which need trimming all the time. And yeah. seeing this as a creative work that's never done is, is great is beautiful and I'd like to land there it's probably a good stopping point and so all that we just described even if I can't honor every minute of every day in this most precious way well ultimately it's just another thing I get to forgive in myself and to keep trying tomorrow
0: B.J. Miller is the executive director of the Zen Hospice Project, an assistant clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and he's an attending specialist for the symptom management service of the UCSF Helen Diller Comprehensive Cancer Center. At OnBeing.org, you can sign up for a weekly email from us, a letter from Loring Park. In your inbox every Saturday morning, a curated list of the best of what we are reading and publishing, including writings by our guest contributors. This week, find Martha Park's essay on carrying guns and loving our neighbors. Find her essay and much more at OnBeing.org. OnBeing.org. Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Terrell, Annie Parsons, Marie Sambilay, Tess Montgomery, Asil Zaron, Bethany Klecker, and Selena Carlson. Our major funding partners are the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. The Fetzer Institute, fostering awareness of the power of love and forgiveness to transform our world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of Public Theology Reimagined. And the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. On Being
1: is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista
0: Tippett Public Production.